Welcome back to the Weird Sisters podcast, your source for Discworld discussion. My name is Bruce, and joining me is Bruce. Hello, Bruce. Where's Bruce? She's out with Bruce. Crikey. (laughs) And now (laughs) that we have thoroughly alienated all of our Australian listeners, (laughs) our book this month is The Last Continent. The story that asks, am I ever going to see your face again? <laughs> this one I was like, I just saw the kangaroo on the cover. And for context, he's wearing like a wizard hat with corks around the brim. And I was just like, okay, I don't really know what's going on necessarily, but I'm very excited for it. Without further didgeridoo, let's <laughs> go into the trivia section. Published in May 1998 and coming at 86.5 thousand words, The Last Continent is the 22nd Discworld book and sixth in the Rincewind series. The title's a play on Lost Continent, a term primarily associated with a 1931 book about the legendary disappearance of Atlantis. The titular continent is named after a brand of beer first brought to market in 1924, and named for the contemporary practice of using X's to denote the strength of a nail. The mention of cave paintings that depict the anatomy of animals is most prominently associated with the aboriginal peoples of the Amhim land, and is used to convey the painter's knowledge of and respect for the world around them. The story is sprinkled with vignettes that directly reference media associated with Australia, mainly Mad Max, Crocodile Dundee, Skippy the Bush Kangaroo, and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Since its initial publication, The Last Continent has been translated into over a dozen languages across roughly 70 editions. The audiobook, read by Nigel Planer, comes in at just under 10 hours, with a three-hour version read by Tony Robinson. At the time of recording, it has not been adapted for stage or screen. Which is, I guess, a little disappointing, but the Rincewind books, I think, are probably the least strong of the series. Mm-hmm. I think they're definitely ones that be struggle to adapt because they like so tightly follow a character while not really necessarily being about the character. Our story begins in the Unseen University Premier School of Magic on the Discworld. The librarian has fallen ill, and now, every time he sneezes, he transforms into a random object. The rest of the faculty resolve to cure his ailment, but none of them know a crucial piece of information, the librarian's actual name. In fact, the only person who would know his name is lost on the other side of the disc. I remember, this was a while ago, Um, but you mentioning that it kind of feels like sometimes the librarian is kind of trying to steal the show in a lot of the books because he's there without necessarily contributing anything. Yeah, and I think this one, he definitely is. Mm -hmm. He's like the impetus for the plot. Yeah, I was wondering how you felt about it because it's like he's there for the entire book, really, but he's just kind of in the background. I have weird feelings about the librarian because, yes, like anyone who reads and enjoys the Discworld books, I do like the librarian as a concept. I just feel that he got a little bit overused. If he hadn't appeared in, say, like, Masquerade Mm -hmm. or maybe one or two other ones, then I would be a lot happier. I think that's totally fair, honestly, because, like, having gotten this far into the series, because I think we're, like, at or if not past the halfway mark at this point, like, he comes up a lot, like far more than any other character, if not by mention only. Well, except death, of course. That actually reminds me, there's a great scene early on where death asks his library for a book about dangerous Phoraxian wildlife and just gets clobbered by the stack of it. 
<laughs> Good stuff. All right, so, the wizard who would know his name. Ah, the last time we saw Rincewind, a magical miscalculation had transported him to the mysterious continent of Forex, spelled with four X's. Since then, he has been wandering the wilderness, surviving off of what food he can find. Then, a magical kangaroo approaches him and tells Rincewind that he is destined to bring back the wet, meaning the rain. So Rincewind is going to make it rain, and presumably not by throwing a bunch of money in the air. <laughs> That'd be a very different book if it was, I think. <laughs> it would be an original thing. <laughs> yeah. Back in the university, the wizards decide to get advice from the Professor of Cruel and Unusual Geography. But when they force down the door to his office, they discover a portal to a strange island where plants grow that fulfill their every desires, including bread, plum pudding, and cigarettes. I can just imagine, like, being able to, like, walk outside and find some, I don't know, a nice chocolate bar that I've been craving lately. Probably be weird getting plants to try to synthesize meat products. Yeah. Just like a, a meatball sub tree would be a weird thing. Yeah, that's one that I could probably <laughs> pass on. Rincewind attempts to flee his destiny the way he does everything else. But in doing so, he falls into a cave containing paintings of himself and the university wizards. The kangaroo, who introduces himself as Scrappy explains that the paintings were almost retconned into existence. Recently added, but thousands of years old. I was, like, very confused but very intrigued by this concept when I got to this point. The idea that something is young and, like, unperceivably old at the same time and those things are not necessarily in conflict with each other, I don't know, it feels very magical in a very deep sense that I think doesn't really pop up in the book or in the series a lot. The wizards are joined by the head housekeeper and subject of several crushes, Mrs. Whitlow. She brings them a table of snacks, but accidentally closes the portal in the process, stranding all of them on the island. We got to meet Eric. Mrs. Whitlow in a previous book. I think it was one of the earlier ones, right? Probably in, like, equal rights, if any. That's what I was thinking of. But it's it's been a hot minute since we read that one, so I'm yeah. starting to lose it a little bit. That evening, Rincewind and Scrappy talk a little bit about the continent, and we get an explanation for the title. 4X is the last continent because it was created after the rest of the disc. Rincewind actually briefly mentions the events of Faust, where he met the creator of the world, and Scrappy shrugs this off. As the kangaroo apparently falls asleep, Rincewind runs away again. I should just call him Runswind. Yeah, because <laughs> he runs like the wind. Hey. <laughs> Back on the island, Ponder Stibbins, the youngest and most scientifically minded member of the faculty, discusses the concept of evolution with the head of the university, Archchancellor Mustrom Ridcully. The Archchancellor is disinclined to accept the notion of animals changing into other animals, up until a dinosaur leaps out in front of them and begins to attack before suddenly transforming into a chicken. Have you ever had to, like, try and convince somebody of the concept of evolution? Not really. Though there was this girl I was briefly friends with in high school, um, and she was new this year, uh, so I really made an effort to get to talk to her, and we got along really well, so we were friends. And then I found out that she didn't believe in dinosaurs or outer space 
And that friendship did not last very long after that. I could maybe understand, like, not believing in the dinosaurs if you're, like, that married to a strict calendar concept and, like, refuse to accept that it could be allegorical. But not believing in outer space baffles me. It's right there. Yeah, I was so, like, confused. And I kind of realized at that point that I can't be friends with somebody I couldn't, like, theoretically go to a museum with. Out in the desert, Rincewind hitches a ride with a dwarf named Mad and haphazardly assists him in fighting off a road gang. The scene was very, very cool and very, like, action-heavy. But as somebody who's never seen Mad Max in, like, almost any capacity, I feel like I'm definitely missing some things from here. Maybe. Also, the dwarf, I would have expected him to be, like, named Mad Min, to be the minimum to <laughs> uh-huh. mad maximum. Yeah, I think there's a good joke in there too. <laughs> Maybe that's one of those things that is easy to think of like when you're not thinking of the initial joke, right? I think that definitely makes sense because I know sometimes you just don't really have the distance to give your best shot at something because you're so stuck on like the first or second version of something. And like it's always easier to edit than to create. Oh, yeah. Ponder Stibbins is frustrated with the rest of the faculty, especially how they refuse to consider his perspective and are always making references he doesn't understand. As he contemplates this, he looks up at the stars and realizes he and the rest of the wizards are actually several thousand years in the past. This book really highlights the age difference between Ponder and the rest of the Unseen University wizards. Just because he feels so, so young in comparison to everybody else. And as somebody who was like in a like public workforce working with people who are significantly older than me, I very much relate to him. <laughs> yeah. I think that is a like prominent part of Ponder's subplot within this. Mm-hmm. And it almost doesn't feel like it gets explored quite enough. Mm-hmm. So Mad of the Dwarf brings Rincewind to a tavern where the wizard samples Exion beer, and his sampling leads to him waking up the next morning obliged to, to participate in a sheep shearing contest, which, thanks to some apparently self-propelling shears, he wins. In payment, the townsfolk give him a teeny horse that they don't quite remember acquiring. While Mrs. Whitlow takes a bath in a nearby lagoon, the wizards discover a boat that was apparently grown out of a pumpkin and they're deeply suspicious as to what created it. Their inquisition frustrates the god of evolution into revealing himself. The god was definitely, like, a fun little character. Like, I'm kind of glad he's just contained to this section of the book, but I feel like he brings a lot of, like, perspective and comedy to, to the book, you know? It's a very interesting and unique take on a divine figure. Oh, yeah. And I feel like he really grounds the island and kind of places it within a bigger context that kind of helps make sense of what's going on. Back on 4X, Rincewind rides his pony through a canyon where it displays cartoonish ability to climb up cliffs. This impresses a group of locals, and after a brief argument about local slang, they buy the pony off of him. This is the part that I think, based on anecdotes from people I've seen, this is the part that's the most accurate to contemporary Australian culture, (laughs) is being unable to agree on what slang terms mean. (laughs) That's so funny. I think this scene is really like what kicked it into like, oh yeah, I'm imagining a movie about this for me. Because the idea of just like Rincewind losing his mind as this pony is just crawling up and down canyon walls was just 
so visually interesting to me. Ponder Stibbins investigates the God of Evolution's workshop, learning about his obsession with beetles in the process. During their talk, the God mentions that the point of the whole business is to be the whole business. A rare example of an existentialist god. <laughs> I do have a slight quibble. Mm -hmm. The god of evolution, I can get the obsession with Beatles, because the music is very popular, and there's <laughs> something like 40,000 of them. Yeah. Although, really, I would think that if there was a god of evolution, their truest passion would be for crabs. Are there a lot of crabs? Have you not heard of carcinization? No, I haven't. Ah, Basically, it's an example of convergent evolution. Oh. Basically, all sorts of things that could be crabs optimize themselves into being crabs. That's so weird. <laughs> yes, it is the crab cycle. <laughs> there is only one step, and it is crab. I know I've heard about that in context to fishes, where it's like, if you look at all kinds of fish, there are more differences between like all of those kinds of fish than there are between, like, mammals and fish. I just didn't realize that also, like, applied to crabs, which are a much stranger creature than fish, in my opinion. That blows my mind. I remember I was telling somebody that, like, crawdads are, like, also arachnids or whatever, and they were like, I don't, I don't think I can eat those anymore. <laughs> <laughs> crab, 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 crab. So the other wizards arrive in the god's workshop, and it comes to light that the god of evolution has not yet invented sexual reproduction. <laughs> None of the wizards are qualified to explain it, but Mrs. Whitlow eventually finds them and volunteers to tell the god about the birds and the bees. I do enjoy the line or the exchange, I believe this sex will solve all of my problems. Uh -huh. And Reed Kelly saying, it's the first time someone's been able to say that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, this had like a lot of good, uh, you know, uh, adults versus kids understanding of a thing and... The wizards, while very powerful, have a juvenile understanding of certain subjects. Yeah. Hungry and delirious, Rincewind scares off a sheep thief, then gets into trouble with the local watch when they find him at the scene of the crime. Of course, immediately preceding that, there's a scene where in a fury of hunger and, like, drunken invention, he invents a spreadable beer and vegetable mush. If I was confident, I would sing the Vegemite theme, but uh, the Vegemite commercial jingle, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Have you ever had Vegemite? Not yet. I haven't either. But I think that I like should just to satisfy my own curiosity. Yeah, I think it would be worth the experience even if I dislike it. So I get that. The wizards prepare to set sail with Ponder Stibbins volunteering to stay behind as an assistant to the god of evolution. But then the god reveals his masterpiece. A creature that can survive anything. The horrible culmination of creation. La cucaracha. <laughs> Terrified of it, Ponder flees to rejoin the wizards. This seems very funny because Ponder does a very, very hard 180 here. It's very indicative of how Ponder, despite thinking of himself as like a scientifically minded individual, is very much blinded by the same... Uh, predispositions that a lot of the more established faculty are. Mm -hmm. like He wants it to be that humans, and to some extent, him are the most important life forms. Mm -hmm. But to the god of evolution, we are just a sort of inefficient ape, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a brief mm, couple paragraphs where the god mentions, like, why do, like, 
humans need to be like the center of the universe why can't it be i think it was beetles so that's his perspective on it uh, rincewind is brought to the city of bugger up and thrown into jail sentenced to death by hanging although after the guards leave he discovers he can lift the cell door off of its hinges to escape out on the boat while feuding over Mrs. Whitlow's affection, the wizards accidentally steer into the massive permanent storm that surrounds the continent that will become Forex. They lose the ship and wind up stranded on the primordial shore. There, the intensely magical environment ages Ponder and youthens everyone else, if only for a few minutes. In any other form, I feel like this bit would have lasted, like, kind of the second act. Yeah, I was definitely kind of expecting that. And because they change back so quickly, Ponder does have greater respect for, you know, people who are up in their years. And forgets that after about five minutes. As Rincewind flees from prison, he meets a street vendor, Fairgo Dibbler who sells him a meat pie floating in mushy peas and tomato sauce. Now, granted, I've never really had Australian food, but if this is a thing, this is something I don't want to try. <laughs> yeah, well, you're not interested in meat pie floating? No, thank you. <laughs> Rincewind then hides from the watch, first in the opera house kitchen, and then in a carnival, hiding among a gaggle of drag queens. There he is reunited with his mystic and malevolent travel companion, the Luggage. He also meets Nielette, a cis woman who joined the troupe filling in for her brother. I was very surprised to see uh, the group like pop up in the book because I just like had no idea that the series even kind of really dabbled with, you know, gender in a deeper way than it has with the dwarves at this point, you know? Yeah, I mean, there was a bit of it in Jingo, mm -hmm. but also I had not seen Priscilla, Queen of the Desert before, and I knew that there was a desert involved because I had heard the title, but I actually kind of assumed it was the Nevada Desert for whatever reason. <laughs> uh-huh. Two seconds of Googling, and it's like, oh, it takes place in Australia. <laughs> okay, now I get it. I, I had luckily had that reference point, at least, because there was this girl I had a crush on a few years ago. Uh, from Australia, who's obsessed with this movie, so I was aware of it. <laughs> if they ever did a movie adaptation, it, wouldn't it be great to have at least one of the drag queens be played by, like, Hugo Weaving? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Back at the dawn of the continent, the wizards meet the creator of the 4X and interfere with the process, inadvertently creating the platypus with many other creatures. The librarian, still magically infantilized, sort of accidentally steals one of the creator's tools, a bull roarer. I had no idea what a bull roarer was, so I definitely like had to look it up. One of the things like I still don't exactly like have my head all the way wrapped around it. I just kind of like vaguely understand it. If you don't mind, I can take a crack at it and see if I can yeah, help. Yeah, go for it. So the bull roarer, and I haven't pre-written this out, so forgive me for stumbling a little bit of my words. The bull roarer is a very ancient musical instrument, basically. Uh, its versions of it are found all over the world. It's most prominently associated with Aboriginal Australian cultures, where, according to mostly white anthropologists, so citation needed and everything, it's associated with the rainbow serpent, which is the term for a collection of various deific figures throughout 
throughout folklore, usually unified by some conceit of bringing water. And the bull roar is meant to be sort of indicative of, like, the rainbow serpent's voice. Okay. In certain, like, Aboriginal cultures, you know, just mm-hmm. making it abundantly clear that this is not a, like, a crash course in Australian <laughs> Aboriginal lore. Yeah, <laughs> we need a longer episode for that. At least I, it did have the, like, touchstone of, oh, okay, this is, like, a thing that makes noise that's maybe used as part of kind of, like, a rain cer- ceremony where you, like, ask for rain in dry times. Neilat takes Rincewind to bugger up University, where he meets... Archchancellor Rincewind, presumably a distant cousin. Together, they investigate a series of ancient caves, and Rincewind recreates the paintings that he saw near the beginning of the story, transporting the university wizards into the present. Because a lot of this book is playing with, like, time and everything, I was convinced that somehow, like, Rincewind was going to end up in the past and become Archchancellor Rincewind. And I was just, like, so stuck on that that I had the rest of the book kind of framed around that, which made other things way more confusing. (laughs) Oh, no. He still might. Yeah, it's a future book. The Unseen University faculty prove unhelpful in solving Forex's drought, but Rincewind takes the bull roarer from the librarian and absentmindedly twirls it, finally completing the creation of the continent and bringing the long-overdue rain. With the drought ended and the librarian apparently cured by the adventure, Rincewind and the rest of the University Wizards set off back to Ankh-Morpork, and 4X is ready to join the Discworld. So that was The Last Continent. What did you think? I really like this one. It definitely is very comedic in a way that I think I've been kind of missing because the watch books feel relatively very serious in comparison. Um... And I've enjoyed getting to step away from Ankh-Morpork for a while and getting to see like a slightly different locale and how the characters interact with that world instead. For me, I think, because this was actually my first time reading it, mm-hmm. I felt a little bit disappointed because it seemed so disjointed. I was hoping for it to come a little bit more together. For example, Mad the Dwarf is there for a couple scenes and then just stops being in the story for no real reason. Yeah, I I definitely get that kind of feeling, especially because at the end, like, Rincewind is saying bye to some of the people he met and, and, like, half of the people he meet just don't show up, which, like, makes sense from, like, a logical standpoint, but feels kind of weird in a narrative sense. It doesn't quite bring it all home. Yeah. And I think that kind of applies in a larger sense, too, because, like, a lot of this book is about time and the difference between being young and being old and the, like, contrast and relationship between those two. And Rincewind is just kind of, like, in the story and doesn't really have anything to do with that. And so, that like, I don't have that idea fleshed out further because I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to feel about that. Yeah, because when he's first talking with Scrappy the Kangaroo, Scrappy mentions that time is sort of wibbly-wobbly in 4X. And I think that's supposed to be indicated by all the regions being very different from each other, but that's not really made explicit enough. Yeah. And there's some stuff in here that is just flat-out unnecessary. Like, in the opening, there's a parody of the Changing of the Guard, a nightly ritual in Buckingham Palace, I believe. Mm-hmm. And that has no bearing on anything. Yeah. Until you mentioned it, I had completely forgotten that was in the book. Yeah. And the inciting incident of the librarian being sick kind of gets solved without real 
apparent effort. I don't know, maybe I missed something, but... It's like, it's still a very good book, but something does just feel a little like it's missing a couple pieces, I guess. Like, it was there, and then it got edited out, kind of. Even as far as, like, Discworld books, there are some that kind of feels like every single thing that's in the book makes sense for one reason or another. This one kind of lacks that. Yeah, because... The Australia parody stuff doesn't quite match the time and what it means parts, right? It's still an enjoyable read, like, and probably pretty high up there among the Rinswind books. Yeah, I mean, it is like a lot of fun. Speaking of Rinswind, this is something I've been thinking about ever since at least interesting times. It starts being true in sorcery. Bear with me. I'm about to say something that's probably a little weird. Rincewind is the Discworld version of James Bond. Okay. Uh, this is probably something I'm just thinking about because I've been listening to a lot of From Rewatch with Love. Uh-huh. He goes to all sorts of exotic places, meets beautiful women, and solves some huge problem that is nearby. Okay. It's just that it's Rincewind doing that instead of someone with charisma and skill. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> Granted, that's a tenuous stretch, but you get what I'm going for here. Yeah, you can just extrapolate that out a little bit. I mean, that's like a step or two removed from just a person does a thing as far as summaries go. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, a couple brief things. Nilette is kind of a non-entity in the story beyond just helping Rincewind get to the university. I think she mostly exists because of the joke around her name being a slapdash feminization of the man's name Neil. I feel like there could have been more there. It's only after Rincewind escapes from jail that we learn that the 4X people have a tradition of imprisoning their politicians to save time. Why didn't he meet any of them there? I mean, I get that the joke around that is probably based on Australians don't really have a culture of respect through deferential behavior. I feel like it could have been woven in more into the narrative. The ending, I am not certain about because it seemed kind of like a almost imperialist notion of just like the outsider comes in and solves the local problem. Mm -hmm. But then again, the problem of there not being rain in the continent was the result of the wizards coming there trying to find Rincewind. I guess maybe the message would be that we have to solve the problems that we create for other people. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think you could, like, if you want to do an academic reading of the book through that lens, I definitely think there's, like, something there. I think it's, uh, Australia is kind of a fraught subject when you want to get into, like, you know, history. You know, it wasn't really, like, treated the best by the British and the aboriginals there. Went through a lot of, like, really rough stuff because of colonialism. It gets complicated real fast, I think. I think that colonialism is a huge thing in British history and that like a lot of the subjects within the Discworld books you can draw parallels to Terry Pratchett like rejecting the uh, nationalist identity mm-hmm. based in that especially how the nature of evil begins with treating people as things mm-hmm. and that is very much a huge aspect of colonialism is treating people like resources yeah and actually also in this very story, there's mention of the nature of being indigenous mm-hmm. and how the dibbler of 4X very much reflects white Australians' attitudes towards the aboriginal peoples mm-hmm. to some extent. 
Yeah. It's always tricky, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the interesting messages of the story get buried under parody, which it wouldn't be a Discworld story without, but it does feel almost like an obligation. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's fair. I mean, it's subtext, but it gets really, really buried underneath everything else. And it's like, it's not a serious one-to-one allegory you know so it's like while I appreciate like how at least kind of a trying to address it I'm not necessarily expecting it to like cure that problem because it's it's not that kind of book so that'll about do it for this month uh, if you enjoyed the show please consider following the podcast on whatever platform you're using be sure to like share and subscribe and check out all of our social media for updates on the show. Thank you, Liz, for joining me. And thanks to Willow Carter for our theme music, to all of our listeners for tuning in. In particular, thank you to those who support us on Patreon. Each episode, we do a special shout-out to one of our patrons chosen at random. And this month, it's Jessica. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you, Jessica. Liz, would you care to read out the favorite footnote? Sometimes Ponder thought his skill with Hex was because Hex was very clever and very stupid at the same time. If you wanted it to understand something, you had to break the idea down to bite-sized pieces and make it absolutely sure that there was no room for any misunderstanding. The quiet hours with Hex were often a picnic after five minutes with the senior wizards. Join us again next month where we'll be discussing Carpe Jugulum. Until then, the The turtle turtle moves. moves.